0: Welcome to The Dream Show. I'm Jane-Theresa Anderson and this is episode Two hundred and sixty-nine. During 2023, we're departing from our usual podcast format to bring you the audio version of my most recent book, Bird of Paradise, subtitled Taming the Unconscious to Bring Your Dreams to Fruition. Today's episode is part four of the ten-part series Each episode is standalone, but you will get maximum enjoyment if you begin with part one, which is episode 266. If you love the guest format, don't worry, it will return in late November 2023 when we've delivered all 10 episodes of Bird of Paradise. And remember, you can go back through every single episode of The Dream Show all the way back to our first episode in 2009 and listen to my conversations with our guests as we explore their dreams at janeteresa.com. That's Teresa with the an H. Publishing the audio version of Bird of Paradise through the podcast means that there is no fee for you, but if you'd like to express your appreciation and enjoyment, I'd like to encourage you to buy the paperback version for yourself or as a gift for a friend or two. Thank you. If you've missed the previous episodes of Bird of Paradise, here's a quote from the back cover to give you an idea of what's in store as you listen. Bird of Paradise is an inspirational guide to finding your calling and navigating your life using dreams, mysteries and alchemy. It's part whimsical memoir, part healing balm and part alchemical guide. And it delivers my down-to-earth tools and techniques for decoding dreams and synchronicities, as well as my unique signature alchemy practices that enable you to flow and grow with life's challenges, paradoxes and mysteries. So here we go with part four. And this chapter is called Heart's Ease, Viola, Tricola. I didn't want to frighten you, a buried fear might say, so I came in a dream. I'm here to answer your questions. Is there anything you'd like to know before I go back into the night? Gentle disguise. My paternal grandfather died when I was 13. I didn't really know him very well, and most memories I have of him are second-hand. They're borrowed from stories told by others. A person and a life fabricated from tall tales, hearsay, and conjecture. He was in his early sixties when I, his first grandchild, was born. After he died, family members found that his heart pills had been tucked one by one under the mattress of his sick bed. He must have slipped them under his tongue, then slipped them out again when no one was looking. I have three pictures of him. One is the last photo taken of him relaxing in a garden chair. My grandmother kept that photo in a frame by her armchair until she died many years later. I have that picture in my mind's eye, in my photographic memory, you might say. A second photograph is my grandfather's wedding photo, a grand affair in Budapest, Hungary. He's in his late 20s or early 30s, an English sailor. My grandmother is just 15 or 16, pregnant, a Budapest child. The third image is the picture I have of him sitting on his motorbike a couple of nights after he died, when he surprised me in a dream. And that's the picture that stays with me, though I don't remember him having a motorbike in waking life and I don't remember anything he ever said to me when he was alive. At the tender age of 13, that dream was life-changing for me. And at the tender age of 13, of course, I believed that Philip Augustus Newton had actually visited me from the afterlife in a dream. I've had vivid, colourful, full-on, textural dream recall for almost as long as I can remember. I have always been fascinated by my dreams, but this was perhaps the first one that got my serious attention. The dream was short. I was standing outside my school, waiting for my young brother Philip to walk up from primary school so he and I could walk home together. While I was waiting, a motorbike came up the road and stopped in front of me. After exchanging a few words, the driver lifted his dark visor, slowly revealing his face. I was surprised to see it was my grandfather. But you're dead, I reminded him. I didn't want to frighten you, so I came in a dream, he replied. That made sense and I was thankful. I was also surprised. (laughs) My breath was momentarily taken away, but I was not frightened. I'm here to answer any questions. Is there anything you'd like to know before I go, he asked. I only had one question, I said. Is there life after death? But I don't need to ask that now. He smiled, lowered his visor and rode away. What that dream did for me as a teenager was to assure me that dreaming was a safe space where I could face fears and find answers to questions as large as the meaning of life. I had no idea where to begin and it would be many years before I would be able to interpret dreams but I developed a profound respect for my dreams from that point forward. Today, as a dream analyst and alchemist, my task, like my grandfather's in my dream, is to help people safely face and understand the fears that limit and shape their lives. It's my job to gently ask and answer questions that help them clarify their vision and touch upon a deeper sense of meaning. I'm often asked why dreams are so bizarre, so masked in symbolic language. I'm glad they are, for as such they allow us to gently pry them open, to give our eyes and hearts time to softly accustom to the light they shine. You may not know your deepest fears, but they show up somewhat disguised in your dreams. I didn't want to frighten you, a buried fear might say, so I came in a dream. I'm here to answer any questions. Is there anything you'd like to know before I go back into the night? When you bury a a fear deep in your unconscious, it, it exerts a powerful influence on your life. It may be out of sight and out of your conscious mind, but that gives it more power. As we know, your unconscious fears limit and shape the way you respond in the world and you have no idea that this is happening. You bury fears you do not want to face, yet the saving grace within gently reveals these to you in your dreams, asking, is there anything you'd like to know? Knowledge is power. When you know about your fears, what they are, where they originated, why you have buried them, how they are influencing your life today, you can set them, and yourself, free. In an intriguing twist to this tale, it wasn't until 2017 that I learned that my grandfather's job in his early years in the Navy was as a writer, logging military details. We had always imagined that he spent his years at sea in the engine room in a more physically demanding role than writing. I guess we never asked. Shortly after their first child, my uncle Frank, was born, my grandmother fled back to Budapest. She needed support, and living in a foreign country, England, with her husband away at sea, wasn't working for her. As a result, my grandfather left the Navy, and they returned to Portsmouth, England, where they would have six more children. He worked in telecommunications and, as far as I know, left any thoughts of writing behind him. When the contents of the family home were sorted out following Uncle Frank's death, grandfather's handwritten pages that documented his trip to Budapest on naval business came to light. They were expressed rather more creatively than I imagine was required by his job at the time. I wonder what he would think about me, his first grandchild, being an author dream medicine close your eyes it's late in the evening and time for your dream medicine here we go counting down now 10 9 8 relaxing floating deeply down let the healing begin no drugs required but the prescription is clear dream. Sometimes the medicine is sweet and tasty, a deliciously sensual dream gifting grace and restoration. It may contain insights that, like the medicine, are easy to take and delightful to absorb and apply in your waking life. Sometimes the medicine is sour and unpalatable, A prickly, uncomfortable dream gifting wisdom that, like the medicine, is difficult to take and unpleasant to absorb. You might learn from this medicine, or you might choose denial, numbing out to it, misinterpreting the dream. Sometimes the medicine is tricky and challenging, a pill too big to swallow, a liquid concoction requiring complex preparation. This dream medicine gifts solutions to difficult problems. You might awaken from this dream medicine with the answer to yesterday's unfathomable problem or with insight into what holds you back from resolving an issue in waking life. Sometimes the medicine is magical, a spell, a talisman, an unexpected out-of-left-field dream that delivers a spiritual perspective that instantaneously changes your life forever. Sometimes the medicine is dark and terrifying, a healing potion dressed in toxic chemical guise, a nightmare from which you will awaken relieved yet haunted. It may leave you fearful of sleep and the next round of dream medicine until you face the dark and terrifying shadow and discover its light and peace. Sometimes the most powerful medicine is the follow-up formula applied on waking, carefully measured to deliver maximum healing benefits. This is the medicine of dream alchemy, a specific exercise created for a specific dream that gently transforms the rusty old iron of the old self glimpsed in a dream into the polished gold of the new Dream alchemy may involve active visualisation, creating an affirmation or some artwork, writing, dialogue and or conducting bodywork or or another modality. In all of these options, one utilises symbols and dramas from the dream. They are designed to communicate with and transform your unconscious mind. So as a simple example... You might dream of seeing a puppy drown and you're unable to save him. On waking, you might relate to a feeling of helplessness in a particular situation in your life and decide to employ dream alchemy medicine. Perhaps you visualise yourself back in the dream, only this time you feel decisive and strong. You reach out and lift the puppy from the water and see him also become instantly decisive and strong. This medicine appears to be deceptively simple, but it's deeply healing. Dream medicine is medicine for the body, mind, and soul. The physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual levels of one's being. And it's free every night. For the medicine to work best, you need to remember your dreams And work with them to discover their deepest healing gifts a powerful presence this is a story of a very simple dream that had a profound effect on my life the powerful factor was not the dream itself it was what I did with the dream how I applied the very simple magic of dream alchemy once upon a time Long ago, I dreamed, I was walking along a road when a horse came up from behind, overtook me, and galloped playfully on. He galloped right past a turn that would have taken him to a meadow ripe with food. He reached the end of the road and came galloping back, again missing the turn. He was playful as he burned up his energy on the road he knew, up and down, up and down, oblivious to the ripe meadow where he might rest, eat and enjoy a sense of home. Suddenly, he drew up right alongside me, so close we almost touched. I felt a small shudder of fear at his proximity, yet also a small shudder of excitement. The horse seemed to challenge me to demand that I acknowledge his powerful presence. That was all there was to the dream. I woke up and interpreted it as all good dream analysts do. The more I thought about the horse, the more I felt the fear. or wait, was it the excitement? To be honest, I couldn't really tell. The two feelings were so close as to be almost indistinguishable. So close as close as the horse nudging up alongside me with his powerful presence. And that's when it happened. A long-lost memory came into clear focus of being about 10 years old, standing in a field, talking to my horse-mad friend Helen. Helen dreamed of having her own horse. She spent her Saturdays mucking out the stables in exchange for rides. Her passion was contagious, so I listened to her stories and read several books about horses and how to ride and care for them. Mucking out stables wasn't for me, <laughs> but the idea of riding was inspiring, so one day Helen took me with her when she went riding so I could get up close and personal with a horse. I was very excited until the horse stood very close to me and I realised just how big it was. Nothing was going to get me onto its back. It was so high above the ground. Reading about horses was one thing. The reality of actually interacting with one was quite another. The horse nudged me with its head, which elicited not love, but pure terror. He was big and strong. I was weak, powerless and scared. As always with dream interpretation, I asked myself what was happening in my life to remind me of that time. I recognised the situation immediately. I was about to go public with some new ideas and yet I was holding back. I was thinking small scale rather than large scale to be on the safe side. According to the picture painted by my dream, I was just going to amble along that road in a small-scale way, creating, at best, an unfocused, playful horse energy that would burn itself up, galloping around on safe known territory, always missing the road that led to the rewarding meadow. How silly can that be? (laughs) Making decisions as an adult based on an experience I'd had at age 10? Not silly at all, of course, because the fears that drive these decisions are unconscious. Let's take stock. I had a simple dream. As a dream analyst, I interpreted it. The interpretation enabled me to recognize an unconscious fear that was about to hold me back from doing something in a big way. I asked myself if that was what I really wanted, and my answer was no. I wanted to find that meadow, that place of ripe rewards. As a dream alchemist, I then applied alchemy to my dream so that I could reap the rewards I desired. This is what I did. I closed my eyes and visualized that dream horse coming up close beside me, just as he had done in the dream. I felt the same small shudder of fear at his proximity and also the same small shudder of excitement As in the dream, I visualised the horse challenging me, demanding that I acknowledge his powerful presence. Then I visualised walking even closer to the horse, feeling the excitement more than the fear, walking closer and closer until I absorbed his being into mine. When I did this, I felt a jolt of energy pulse through my body, a sign that the alchemy was working. I then visualised and focused on feeling moving along the road as if I were riding that horse. And an amazing thing happened. As I did this visualisation and focused on feeling the power, I felt a steadiness flow through my own body. I had expected to feel an all-powerful high energy as if nothing could stop me. Instead, I felt steady, supremely confident. So confident, in fact, that I slowed the horse's gallop down to a relaxed walk. This meant we were at exactly the right speed to notice the road leading to the meadow. Instead of whizzing around and never seeing the road, we made the turn into it, and the horse and I, as one, entered the meadow. In my visualisation, I focused on how good it felt to finally reap the rewards I desired. As per the formula for dream alchemy practices, I repeated my visualisation for a few weeks more. Day by day, I found my confidence improving, and gradually I began to make decisions that were on a larger scale. The feelings I experienced in my waking life began to change. I wondered what on earth there was to fear about reality turning out to be bigger and better and more powerful than I'd imagined and that's exactly what dream alchemy does once it's worked its magic and changed a fear or belief it leaves you wondering how the dickens you ever thought any other way it transforms you the new you shakes your wiser head in amazement at how the old you lived your life and things move forward as life continues to deliver Ever great greater rewards. Should we be scared? Should we be scared? What's going to happen, do you know? asked a woman sitting close to me as we waited for the show to begin. The performance space, decked out with memorabilia of unexplained phenomena, a Yeti glared down at me from a framed poster, was suitably dimmed as we sat shoulder to shoulder on the floor. The show we were about to experience was called It Will Find You of the, and fear of the Unknown was on the menu, except it wasn't totally unknown for me as I was performing in one of the pieces, Chris Allery's Three Days Before the Storm, which featured a scary dream. At a certain cue, Chris, the dreamer, and I, the dream analyst, stood up from the audience to discuss the dream. It was unscripted. We hadn't talked about the dream before the performance. Again, scary dreams, once analysed, throw light on the basis of our fears. The unknown is removed from the equation. We can look at our fears and how they cause us to live our lives. We can decide which fears are helpful and protective to our well-being, and which, the majority, <laughs> hold us back from growing into a bigger life. Fear is an emotion triggered by something known or unknown, registered in the mind and felt in the body through the release of hormones designed to prepare the body for fight or flight. Faced with a tiger, you might stand your ground and fight or take flight as fast as you can, either way drawing on that adrenaline-fueled, pumped-up energy. Or you might freeze on the spot, This would be a suitable response for animals whose bodies blend in with the background, instantly camouflaged, magically disappearing from sight. Or for foxing the predator with your frozen, erect hackles, your frozen, retracted lips, baring your teeth in mock menace. Faced with a tiger, fear is valid and helpful. Though whether I would automatically fight, take flight or freeze on the spot, would probably be of little consequence, unless, that is, help was at hand in the shape of a nearby car or tiger tamer or something or someone to divert the big cat's attention. Faced with suddenly finding myself on the edge of a cliff, my fear would be valid and more helpful in ensuring my survival, assuming I reined in the flight response to a careful, measured, stepping backward onto safe ground. Fear in our daily lives may protect us from stepping out onto a busy road, from driving dangerously, from a whole host of potentially life-threatening situations. And yet so much of our fear is based on past experience that is no longer relevant, or on false premises, on hand-me-down beliefs from past generations, from home, from school, from church, from the media, from whispers and secrets about the unknown. This pondering reminds me of a dream I once had. A door opened and a lion ambled into the room. A frisson of fear iced my bones before the ambling made me look again. This was no lion. It was a mechanical beast, lion-skin fabric draped over an articulated timber frame. Although this alleviated my fear and my dread was gone, Unease settled in its place. The mechanical lion circled me, then stood behind me, out of view, unseen. He then placed a paw on my forehead, on my third eye. He held his paw steady until I felt a warm trickle of water, a thawing of ice, a rivulet of life, a melting into flow. Although I wasn't lucid in the dream, at no point did I think, hey, this is a dream, I realised what was happening. I saw the thing I feared for what it was. Not real, not flesh and blood, but something man-made or woman-made, given that its maker was me. It was a fabricated fear, a constructed belief, nothing but fabric and timber, nothing life-threatening, something easily deconstructed now that I had faced it and seen it for what it really was. How long had it kept me in its frozen thrall, fearful of giving my intuition, I associate the third eye as a symbol of intuition, full flow. We all have our mechanical articulations, the unconscious things we say and do. These articulations are often based on fear, We can identify these in our dreams and put them into words. We can consciously articulate these fears and their foundations, acknowledge and respect the power they have held over us in the past, then transform them into new structures that support us as we move with curiosity rather than fear into the unknown. Mindful Dreaming I was scared of the jaguar in my dream last night, said seven-year-old Jade. I don't want to have that dream again. Usually buoyant and blessed with a loud exuberant voice, she whispered the word jaguar, afraid at some level that even just mentioning the jaguar might conjure him up in waking life. I asked Jade about stories and movies involving scary animals that she'd read or seen, and she was surprised at how many there are. The more we talked about her favourite stories and movies, the more she noticed that they all had a scary bit in the middle of the story, but a happy ending. In most of them she remembered that the way through to the happy ending was to overcome the fear by confronting the scary animal, to teach it a lesson or to make friends with it. We had a little chat about what makes a good story. Overcoming something scary or solving a problem or a mystery with everyone learning something new. Oh, and of course, a happy ending. It was then easier to return to the jaguar in her dream and see some possibilities for dealing with him. You and I both know that the jaguar symbolised something scary in Jade's life, whether in her waking world or within herself. Looking at the rest of her dream, I could see what it was and subtly help her through it. However, I wanted to give her what I called a magic spell to deal with any scary animals or people in future dreams. If you ever meet a scary jaguar in another dream, Jade, I said, look more closely and you'll see he's really quite friendly after all. Just like the jungle beast in your favourite most scary storybook. I knew enough about the jaguar in her dream and her life to know that this was the best dream alchemy for her. It would help her to befriend her fears and move forward. A wonderful thing about working with young children is that they're very open to suggestion and if you tell them what to do next time they meet a jaguar in their dream, they'll generally do it. And it seems that I took on the suggestion too for the following night I dreamed that I was enjoying a run along a gentle hilly road when I saw a scary lion ahead of me. He was poised, still, waiting for me, and I was very, very scared. Instead of turning on my heel, though, I slowed my run and looked at him more closely as I approached. Yes, there it was, a friendly, supportive look in his eye. He wasn't waiting to pounce on me and kill me. He was waiting for me so that we could run together and he could lend me his strength. We began to run side by side and I slowed my pace to match his. He was very slow for a lion. Suddenly there were four other lions slowly ambling along with us, all of one accord. I felt safe, protected by my pack. I decided to show them my special magic, how to run so slowly that you can stay airborne for several seconds at a time. It's a kind of gravity-defying slow dance of a run that I enjoy doing in dreams when the opportunity comes up. The lions followed suit and together we danced slow, graceful arcs, all senses mindfully engaged. As always, I was surprised to wake up and find that it had been a dream. I'll take the liberty to coin the phrase, mindful dreaming. This is not a method of being mindful that you are dreaming, but of being mindful within a dream, opening to all your senses, slowing to the glorious, timeless moment, making friends with your fears. Why do you do that? I was sitting in hair and makeup at the television studios one week, being made up to go on a national morning show. In everyday life, the only makeup I wear is red lipstick. In television life, much more is required to survive and look alive in the bright lights of a TV studio. Although I have occasionally fronted up to the camera and just my lipstick and gotten away with it, I always appreciate being on the receiving end of a talented hair and makeup artist's skills. What are you talking about today, asked Abigail, the makeup up artist, as she riffled through her palette of paints and powders, selecting the required combination. Dreams about work, I replied. Oh my, confided the news journalist in the chair next to me, I had a dream about work last night. Between applications of mascara, eyebrow pencil, blushes, shapers, lipsticks and volumes of spray-on foundation, <laughs> our conversation ranged from the meanings of work dreams to why we have dreams, why some people never remember the dreams, and what I do to remember my dreams. It was at the hairspray stage of our preparation that the news journalist asked the best of questions. I had just described how I remember my dreams. I lie still when I wake up, wait for an image from a dream to arise, then trace back and forward from the image to bring the whole dream into view. I then ponder the dream, pull in smaller details, and in doing this, move it from an ephemeral dream memory that would otherwise evaporate into my waking life memory. There are many ways to remember your dreams, but this is how I do it after all these decades of practice. And then came her question, why do you do that? Why do you spend that time remembering your dreams each morning before you get up? A good question indeed. I do it because I love relishing the sensuality and adventure of my dreams. I love lounging in the nuances, feeling my way into the symbols, connecting to the heart and soul of the surreal landscape that a dream reveals. I bring back the challenging and scary dreams with as much satisfaction as I bring back the extraordinary and the mundane. I'm a fisherman standing on the shore with my early morning catch, Colorful, lively, nourishing dreams retrieved from the depths of the night. I do it because I learn so much about myself, about the makeup of my unconscious mind, and how it influences the way I see and interact with the world, and the choices this insight gives me to make powerful changes in my life. I do it because my dreams fuel fresh perspectives, creative ideas solutions to problems, healing, alchemy and ongoing personal and spiritual growth. I do it to see the makeup of myself and then to see through the makeup to connect with the deepest reality of my being. But I didn't say any of that to the news journalist. Our time in hair and makeup was done. Instead I said that we should have had the cameras in with us recording our conversation while we were being made up. It was a good conversation and it would have made great TV. Next chapter, buttercups and daisies. Ranunculus acris and bellus perennis. Daisies are our silver, buttercups are gold. This is all the treasure we can have or hold. Jan Struther. I live in a land far away from those English buttercup and daisy meadows, but the verse we sang in my first year of school still sings me through my days. How much does worry weigh? Never worry worry till worry worries you, my maternal grandmother used to say. There's a grain of truth in there and a wobbly tongue twister, but the day I really got the measure of worry started out as a simple morning with two friends when we were all young mothers. The three of us met once a week so that our preschool children could play together while we caught up over coffee. That morning, I had opened my checkbook to pay an electric bill and realised that I was about a $100 short. I had miscalculated when setting our household budget and I was disappointed in myself. We had money in other accounts, but I would have to go to the bank, those pre-internet banking days, and organise transfers. By the time I made my payment, it would be overdue and I laugh as I write because I have since handled much bigger budgets and much greater shortfalls, and I'm still here to tell the tale. My worry over that bill weighed heavily on me as I walked into my friend's kitchen for our morning coffee. I was the last to arrive. I've got to make a decision this afternoon, one friend was saying to the other. What do you think, the champagne or the pink? She was talking about a new ring, not to wear, though she probably would wear it occasionally, but as an investment. Champagne diamond or pink diamond? Which should it be? She was worried. She wanted to make the best choice. We were her friends. We talked it through. Once we'd thoroughly discovered, discussed every facet of the diamond issue, <laughs> my other friend piped up with her problem. We may have to sell our house, she said, and rent a home instead. Our business is accumulating more debt than we can manage. She was worried. Was there an alternative she was overlooking? We were her friends. We talked it through. Then we discussed the problem I was having with my finances, and we talked that through. It was interesting that all three problems were financial in nature. What I noticed that morning from the emotional energy we each carried was that our worries weighed the same, even though a bystander would notice that each worry involved a different amount of money. A shortfall of about a hundred bucks weighed the same as a shortfall of about a quarter of a million dollars, which weighed the same as an abundance of disposable income. Worry, I noticed, expands to fill the available space, so the trick is not to allow it any, or, as I often say these days whenever it's appropriate, There are two ways to do this. One is to worry, the other is not to worry. Not worrying does not mean not caring, of course. It means not wasting energy worrying when you could be putting that energy to constructive use. That morning I gained a new perspective on worry that worked for me. But what about those times when, as my granny's saying put it, it, worry worries you? What about those times when something is niggling and worrying you and making you anxious and you can't escape it? That's where dream work comes in. Your dreams, particularly your recurring unresolved dreams, can help you to understand unconscious beliefs that throw dark clouds where there should be light, that distract you with worry rather than inspire you toward achieving great outcomes. The path of resistance. Have you ever endeavoured to accomplish something and then felt a wall of resistance rise up to meet you? It's happened to me quite a bit. On one occasion I was considering a particular undertaking but couldn't seem to take the requisite first steps to get it off the ground. I thought the task would be too tough. No part of me really wanted to do it and my heart counselled no. No doubt you want to know what this undertaking was, but I'm saving it for the end of the story, so you'll just have to be patient and not jump ahead. I have other creative projects that bring me joy, and shouldn't we follow our bliss? And questions of bliss aside, was it really necessary to do this thing? For a couple of days I convinced myself that it wasn't, and my heart felt the relief. Surely this was a good thing. It was early 2017 and I had the classic dream of walking with heavy legs, glue feet, dragging myself through viscous air, every step a huge effort, gaining me only a few centimetres, while everyone around me walked with ease. This used to be a recurring dream theme for me when I was much younger. It was odd to find myself back there, in the thick of resistance, conscious or unconscious my resistance to the task was beautifully dreamed in metaphor but I didn't recall enough detail to identify the deeper perhaps unconscious cause of my resistance was it doubt fear or burnout if I were to take the follow your bliss approach or the listen to your heart approach each of which are fabulous tools for navigation I might have happily dropped the task then and there. If I were to follow a popular approach to dream interpretation and ask what guidance my dream was offering or what my dream was telling me to do, I might have decided to drop the task, release the heaviness, listen to the resistance of my soul and follow a lighter path. But that's not the way I approach dreams. My research and decades of experience working with dreams has led me to the conclusion that dreams do not offer guidance or tell us what to do. They show us what is. They reflect our conscious and unconscious mindset back to us. They reveal our patterns, our beliefs, our emotions, our experiences, our limited thinking, our personal perceptions, our unique wiring, the big picture of the self as it sits at the time of each dream. And my dream was accurate. I was resisting big time. But was I resisting something that would actually be good for me to do? The dream invited me to explore my resistance, to examine the underlying factors, to take time to replenish and re-energise and decide what to do. I had the inside information all laid out in my dream. This made it easier for me to make a decision and to take guidance from exploring the insight gifted by my dream, rather than looking for a guided message in my dream. I also practiced some dream alchemy to transform the energy of the dream from fear to excitement. Once awake, I visualized myself walking that dream road but easily with lightness and with uplifting, refreshing breezes to carry me forward. I summoned up a feeling of expansion in contrast to the resistance and restriction I'd felt in the dream. And I allowed the dream alchemy to communicate with my unconscious and do its transformational magic. The next day I realised the task that I'd had such resistance to was necessary. The thought of completing it felt exciting and expansive. My heart counselled yes, and my inner bliss meter voted in favour. I still thought the task would be tough, but I trusted in the dream alchemy to get me through it. I also decided to make the task meditative, to focus on the deeper reason for doing the work, and to polish my soul by taking up the alchemical challenge. By now, you must be wondering about that task. I've painted a picture of immense difficulty, which is exactly what we do when we resist and duck and dive, isn't it? You'll laugh, I know, you will, but here it is. The task was to write a multiple-choice test for people completing my first online learning course, How to Interpret Your Dreams Step-by-Step, which I was about to launch in the Dream Academy at that time. It's a self-test. You do it, it gives you a score, and you get to find out how much you have or haven't learned. So I sat down and began, (laughs) and within five minutes I was in the blissful flow, surprised by the ease of the task and the creative buzz it delivered. By the time it was complete, I realised how absolutely vital this task was. I could hardly believe that only a couple of days before, I had convinced myself that it didn't need to be done and that it didn't fit with my bliss thank goodness for dreams and the dream alchemy that saved the day a question of reframe to reframe or not reframe that is the question how does reframing a situation help one deal with the sea of trouble are there times when it's more important to delve into that sea with eyes wide open to feel it to know it, to resolve and heal it, rather than to pretty it up? Or might you delve into that troubled sea with eyes shut tight in sleep, perchance to dream, a clearer understanding of why you perceive trouble in the first place? Let's begin with that troubled sea by way of a story from my own life. One summer, Michael and I enjoyed a holiday by the sea on South Australia's Flurio Peninsula, Most days we walked along the beach early in the morning light, late in the evening towards sunset and sometimes in the glorious hot sunshine of midday. These are among the most beautiful beaches in the world, with long stretches of sand and clear turquoise-blue water. Most days were luxuriously warm, but being South Australia, some days were also whipped by cold Antarctic winds. On the couple of days when the weather was a bit wild, we stuck to our evening beach walk. We were wrapped in several layers of clothing and we leaned into the wind when we were walking one way and they were lifted off our feet coming back, our faces buffeted by stinging salty sand. For a brief moment, the experience reminded me of being by the sea in Scotland. In the next instant, wham! I imagined we were enjoying a blustery walk along a Scottish beach. I was transported by the magic immediately, without incurring any travel expenses and no jet lag. Body and mind, I was in Scotland, on a beach I loved long ago, and there was not a drop of rain in sight. Reframing that situation was easy and harmless. I was reframing my experience of a weather-troubled sea, not any in a emotional sea of troubles. There's a pose in yoga that began to get to me late last year. It's a simple pose but one I didn't enjoy doing. It was uncomfortable. It's chair pose and it involves squatting down as if you're sitting on a chair while extending your arms up beside your ears. I had done it happily for years But the extended holds, and perhaps squatting more deeply than I had done before, began to elicit a negative response. As soon as chair pose was announced, I would hear myself think, swear word. So I decided to reframe. As I did the pose, I imagined sitting on a golden seat, feeling its solid support beneath my thighs, lifting my arms up in joy to embrace this moment of rest. The reframing changed the feel of the pose, but the more important outcome was that it helped me to go into the pose more deeply, a a kind of surrender that encouraged the physical changes my body needed to make me feel more comfortable in it. Like the Scottish Beach scenario, the yoga pose was hardly a troubled emotional sea either, but the story shows how reframing a situation you don't like can go beyond transforming a dislike into a like it can create deep change that promotes growth and eliminates pain one of the weirdest pain reframes that I have ever done was perhaps my first I was about seven sitting in the dentist chair having a tooth drilled This was back in the day when dental anaesthetics didn't work that well and you could still feel every grinding vibration of the squealing drill. I was too young to have heard of the concept of reframing a situation but the unexpected pain drove me there. This was my seven-year-old attempt. I told myself things could be worse. I could be in the jungle having my legs sawn off without anaesthetic. This dental drilling in a safe environment could be easily endured in the face of that. It worked. (laughs) Perhaps it worked because my attention was diverted towards creating the alternative undesirable experience. As I write this, I realise that things could be a lot worse statement was something my mother used to say, as was, do something to take your mind off it. So my approach wasn't so original after all. It was due to programming, taking on the beliefs and framings of my mother. My dental reframing has stayed with me as a useful tool in many areas of my life, as well as for its practical application in the dentist's chair. I rarely accept anaesthetic for simple dental procedures and instead reframe the situation as an opportunity to lay back in a comfortable recliner and enjoy total relaxation. It works. I get to practice identifying any physical tension and letting it go, and I emerge from the chair feeling totally refreshed and able to smile and speak properly without numb lips. Reframing is a valuable life skill that can lift us up when we're feeling low, motivate and inspire us to discover new meaning and purpose and enable us to see solutions where before we saw problems, light where we saw dark. But is there a downside to reframing in some circumstances? Might you sometimes choose to see something through a frame that makes you feel better while the issue at heart remains unresolved or slides from bad to worse? Might your reframing of your job be stopping you from talking to your employer about a raise, dealing with a work issue, or finding a new way of making money? Might your reframing of a relationship be blocking the opportunity to acknowledge, resolve, and heal a divisive issue between you and a significant other? Might your reframing of an addiction tighten its hold on you? In short, might your reframing blind you to what you need to know and address? Of course, it's all about your choice of reframe of the painful situation. One reframe might block an acknowledgement of the heart of the issue, while a different reframe might give you purpose and the resources you need to acknowledge, address and resolve the issue. From birth we begin to acquire our individual frames of perspectives, our beliefs about the world. We learn, consciously and unconsciously, from our parents, guardians, relatives, friends, schools, cultures, the media, our personal experiences. We build our mindsets, our individual, complex, interconnected frames through which we further experience our lives. Night by night, dream by dream, we process our experiences and either consolidate that mindset or change it. When you know how to understand your dreams, you gain deep insight into your mindset, into the various and often unconscious frames through which you perceive and interact with the world. It's here in DreamWork that you can effectively sort through your framing And do an inventory, keeping the helpful frames and acknowledging and transforming, reframing, the less helpful or damaging ones. And that's the end of today's episode. (laughs) So thank you for listening to part four of Bird of Paradise. And the next installment, part five, will be released as episode 270 which is due out on the 15th of June 2023 if you're listening to this in real time. Remember you can buy the paperback or digital version wherever you buy your books or look under books on the menu of my website at janetheresa.com janetheresa.com is also where you can go to discover my other books and courses as well as to consult me privately and JaneTeresa.com is also where you can go to listen back to all previous episodes of The Dream Show. If you're keen to listen to guests exploring their dreams with me, go to episode 265 and work back from there. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of The Dream Show. I'm Jane Teresa Anderson.